as we begin, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have you do uh, a ton of liturgy, uh, but I would love for you to indulge me for just a second. Would you, would you close your eyes, and, and as we uh, prepare to look at God's Word, uh, I, I want to practice uh, what I hope is a little bit of, uh, we'll, call it, we'll call it liturgy, even though I don't know if it technically is, but I want you to repeat after me. Okay, just, just say it out loud. If only a couple of you do it, it's very awkward. If everyone does it, it's totally normal. God, this morning I want to hear from you. I've heard a lot of voices this week. Some of them have encouraged me. Some of them have literally sucked the life out of me. But God, I'm here today because I want to hear from you. God, open my ears that I would hear your voice. Open my mind that I would understand your word. Open my heart that I would do the things you've asked me to do. God, let me hear from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, so one, of the, one of the reasons I have you do that uh, is, is because I talk to people often who say, uh, I grew up in church, but I don't know how to pray. I don't know what it is to really have a conversation with God. And it always blows my mind because as churches, we do really well sometimes at having people come and we celebrate that you're here. We love that you're here. But at the end of the day, do you really know how to have a conversation with God? Have you, have you ever spoken to him, not been in a room with other people who have done it? So one of the reasons that I wanted to do that is partly because uh, you should know how to talk to God. And sometimes we build it up like it's this big intimidating thing. It's this big scary thing. I have to have the right words. And what I found is most effective when you have a conversation with God is you speak to him. You talk to him like you would a friend, like you talk to someone else. And so there are things you may ask for. There are things you may receive. But most importantly, uh, to find yourself on the receiving end of what God wants to do in your life. And, and truth be told, even as we come and we sing and we worship, we give, we talk about high school, we talk about worship nights. At the end of the day, are you here because you really want to hear from God? It's easy sometimes to come and say, well, I'm here because I love the seats, or I love the instruments, or I love the people. Uh, but as many wonderful things as we have, there are also some things that might annoy you, some things that you don't like. And ultimately, why are we here? We're here because we want to hear from God. And the greatest thing that I could ask for you as you think through this is, do you want to? Do you want to hear from the Lord? Whether you would say that you're early in your faith, whether you'd say that you are a professional and very mature in your faith, do you really genuinely want to hear from the Lord? Uh, another thing that I wanted to do just, just for kicks is, um, is to acknowledge uh, some people who, who, you know, every once in a while I go online and I try to say hi to the people who are watching online because uh, some of you, you've never met uh, there's a whole group of people that have been faithful and they've been involved with our church and they watch online. Uh, and so I, I was trying to make note of some folks, uh, David and Jenna in Massachusetts. It's great to see you. Bob and Karen enjoying the Jersey Shore. Hope you're having a great time. Hardy and Mahima in Wilton. Uh, there's a lot of people who are watching online and we're excited that you've carved out space where you are and that you are a big part of our church. And so I, I wanted to say uh, hello to you. Uh, we are uh, wrapping up today a series called Sharing What Matters. 
sharing what matters. And uh, the whole goal of it has been to try to equip you a little practically to be able to talk about your faith. What does it really mean to be able to talk about your faith? Uh, sometimes our, our faith is one of those things that's like politics. It's personal, and I don't want to talk about it, although lately politics isn't really personal anymore. Uh, but our faith is something that will say, you know, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. I have a personal relationship with God. And sort of what that ends up equating to at times is this thing that we keep and we put it in our pocket. And when no one's around, we might pull it out and sort of look at it and, and, and nurture it or take care of it. But in terms of knowing how to navigate our faith with other people, sometimes it's really easy that our faith sort of gets... Uh, it kind of gets gooed up in our politics or it gets gooed up in our neighborhood or it gets gooed up in our school. Things where we begin to think that a lot of other things represent our faith, maybe more than our actual relationship with God. So how do you talk about your faith? And so uh, let me give you a quick recap in case you have skipped church and you refuse to watch us online. Uh, we have been talking about sharing your story how do you share your story? This idea that is God moving within your life? And have you ever tried to encapsulate God's movement in your life in such a way that you're able to take the intersections of where you've seen God move in your story and uh, be able to offer that to somebody who might be going through something similar? So how do you share your story? We talked about sharing your hope, sharing your hope. Uh, we had a guest speaker, fantastic, talked about this idea that God uh, brings life, he breathes life into our dry bones in the sense that we serve a God who literally brings us to life. And if that doesn't give us hope, well, then what do we have? Do you have hope? Is your hope contagious? Do you, are you able to share hope? Or do you check the box of being a Christian, but you have no joy, you have no hope, there's nothing beyond today that you're looking forward to? I bet if I were to raise my hand and say, have you ever met a Christian who lacks joy? I won't do it. I bet you could raise your hand. Have you ever found somebody that seems the longer they've been a Christian, the harder it is for them to smile? Yeah, I have. I've also met some people that have been through some incredible situations in their life, and because of the centrality of Jesus to them, they have hope beyond all explanation. And a lot of us, we just exist in the middle. Sharing your hope, that's a huge deal. Uh, and then last week we talked about sharing your life. This idea that none of us were called to go through life alone, this idea that the gospel is best communicated and received within the context of relationship. And so we looked at Paul talking about how he, he went to people and he didn't just share the gospel in terms of bullet points on a card, but that he actually shared his life with them. They did life together. We talked about in, a, in an area like this, in a, in a region like this, sometimes doing life together is a little hard because you're busy. Sometimes we have trust issues and we want to get to know some people before we share too much. But the importance of not just sharing the gospel in content, but to say, I actually brought my life up against theirs for the sake of sharing about the good news of Jesus. Today, uh, we're wrapping up, and we're going to talk about sharing an invitation. Sharing an invitation. Now, when I was thinking through this, uh, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad we have the Oasis uh, invitations, because if, if you're a middle schooler, if you're a high schooler, and like, 
Asaph said, this first one, this kickoff, we're opening it up to, to really the whole family if you just want to come and be a part of it. Uh, also opening it up if you want to volunteer, if you want to serve. But this invitation is really important. It reminded me of uh, another invitation that I got in the mail. It's, you know, with weddings and COVID sort of put the, put the hammer, dropped the hammer on everybody's wedding plans. And so weddings weren't the normal thing that people wanted. And coming out of COVID, everybody's trying to get their weddings done. Well, before COVID shut down weddings, uh, we had some friends who were getting married. And so we got a wedding invitation in the mail and we got it and it was beautiful. I mean, I, I, know, I know for you, you husbands that have been involved in wedding planning, uh, you know the, the, the time and the energy that goes into invitation uh, papers, and, and that's typically when you begin to realize, I am not up to this task, okay? When you go picking out the food, totally up for the task. Sit me down with a bunch of food options, I will sample, I will taste, and I will give you great feedback. But when you go and you start to pick out invitations, what do you do? When it was us, you flip pages, and you're looking at this one, then you flip the page, you look at another one. Nowadays, it's probably all electronic and online, but I can tell you, after the first four, five, six, they all look the same to me. They're all the same. It's, it's silver, it's gold. It's this or it's that. Embossed, I don't know, there's all sorts of stuff. And so we received this invitation in the mail, and it was beautiful. You touched it, and you could feel you could feel it. It wasn't just this one-dimensional sort of a thing. You could touch it. You, you could close your eyes, and you could feel the writing, and there was a texture to it. It was thick. It was good paper. They spent good money on it, as you're supposed to do. It had that little, it had that little uh, unnamed paper that goes over it because you can't just put the invitation. you got to put that thin, almost transparent paper over it because that validates it. It's sort of like a stamp of we take this seriously. And I don't even know what it's called. So, but, so this, this invitation was beautiful. And I'm going through it. And it's, and it's uh, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so and the parents of so-and-so and so-and-so and the date. And it's got all this information. But then I, I, start to, I start to look at it. And I realize they didn't say where the wedding was. And I thought, well, this is strange. Like, it's got all the important information. It's got the time. It's got the please RSVP. It's got all, all this stuff but they didn't say where the actual wedding was going to be. And what ended up happening was the poor bride had to scramble, and she's now having to call everybody to say, I'm sorry. We got so caught up in the details and so caught up in, in, in the form and the beauty and all the, and all the raised fonts and all these different things and picking out the right cardstock and doing all this stuff, we totally forgot to just put on the invitation where the wedding was. And it was, it was kind of a blunder, but it was a big blunder. And, and the reason that I thought of it, um, not only to relate to some of you that have experienced wedding planning struggles, um, but because one of the things that I'm acutely aware of when, it, when we talk about sharing what matters and being able to talk about our faith, I realize that sometimes as Christians, we are able to focus on so many things and we want to invite and we want to share our faith and we want to do this, that, and the other thing. But have you ever stopped and thought about what is it that you're inviting someone to do? When you are sharing your faith with someone, what is the destination on the invitation? Because we can put so much time and energy into the invitation itself, and we can say, okay, I don't want to talk about politics. I don't want to be weird. I don't want to be awkward. I want to do this. I want to do that. But what is the actual destination of the invitation that you're sharing? Are you inviting them to believe in a church? Are you inviting them to sign a contract? Are you inviting them into a better life? 
Are you inviting them into the beginning of an intellectual study that really doesn't have any bearing on their heart? Vice versa, are you inviting them into a feeling, an expression, an emotion that really you don't anticipate any intellectual wrestling? What is the thing that you were inviting someone into? I found that sometimes uh, Christians, and myself included, uh, we feel like the goal is, well, I want to invite someone to church, which is great. I'm a pastor. You should invite people to Hope Church. But here's the dilemma. Sometimes we're more comfortable inviting people into a relationship with our church than we are into a relationship with our Savior. Sometimes we're more comfortable inviting someone into a transactional thing. If I can just get you to pray a prayer, if I could just have you pray a prayer, I would talk to people who would go door to door and they would talk to people. And they would go and they'd, they'd go to the door and they'd talk to them about Jesus. And their goal when they left was to have them pray a prayer. And if I could just get them to pray a prayer, and I would say, well, how does that, how does that jive with making a disciple? How are you helping someone grow into their relationship with Jesus? Well, I just want them to pray a prayer. I just want them to sign on the dotted line, say that I was here, everything went okay. What is the destination on your invitation when it comes to really trying to share what matters? What are you asking people to do? And this matters tremendously. Two reasons that I'll give you right now, and then we're going to jump into some scripture. The reason it matters is because I want you to be able to share confidently I don't want you to have an invitation that you give and it's sheepish because you don't re- you're afraid they're going to read it all. I'm afraid that they're going to find the holes in my invitation. I want you to be confident that when you share your faith, you're not nervous that they're going to ask you about the fine print. The other reason it matters is because some of you may have responded to an invitation and you don't really know what it's trying to get you to do. Some of you, you may have grown up in the church, you may have grown up in a church, you may have grown up in a family, and you thought that you received that invitation, you thought that you accepted that invitation, but truth be told, you are now well past that time of receiving it, and you still don't really know what it was that you said yes to. You still don't really know what it means to say, I'm a Christian. I've given my life to Christ. And so what ends up happening is we pull things out, and you feel like, well, that's not really what I committed to, being in community, being generous, being together, serving. I don't really know if those are the things that I've really committed to. And so in an effort to not be bait and switch, in an effort to make make sure that you feel confident in what you offer and also that you feel confident in what you've received, that's why this is really important, that you understand the role of the invitation what you offer, and maybe what you've already received. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at some key components uh, out of three key passages. We're going to go through three passages of Scripture. We're going to look at some key components of what this invitation really means, what this invitation is really all about. Okay, so the first passage that we're going to look at is Matthew 4, Matthew 4, verses 18 to 20. Matthew 4, 18 to 20. We'll have it up on the screen, and and it's in the Bible app, or you can use your own uh, Bible if you'd like to. And basically, here's what we have. It's early in Jesus' ministry. Jesus is inviting people. He's starting with a core. He is inviting people into this core aspect of being a part of his team. So Matthew 4 is this early stage of Jesus inviting people, and we're going to see really what is the most important aspect of the invitation. 
Okay, so let's look at that. Matthew 4, start at verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. Why? Because they were fishermen. That was their job, okay? They weren't just two guys hanging out, just sort of seeing what happens. Their job was to catch fish. And so Jesus passes by, and he sees them by the Sea of Galilee, and they're throwing their, their nets into the sea because that's their job. They were fishermen. And Jesus says to them in verse 19, he says, follow me. If you have a real Bible, you can underline, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Verse 20, immediately they left their nets and they followed him. The most important detail on the invitation is the invitation to follow Jesus. The most important detail, the most important detail on the invitation that you are sharing is when Jesus says, follow me, follow Jesus. When you share an invitation, you are not sharing an invitation to say, follow the church. The invitation is not to follow the church. It's not a priest. It's not a man. It's not a woman. It's not even a movement. It's not an invitation into a political party. It's not an invitation into a zip code. The call was crystal clear from Jesus. Follow me. Follow me. Jesus left no uh, doubt or question about who he was asking them to follow. Follow me. So I guess the, the simple basic question, which I'm sure all of you will answer the right way because you've been trained, if I were to say to you, who are you following? You're all going to tell me Jesus. But the honest ones are going to pause. And you're going to say, am I really? Am I really following Jesus? What are the other things that I run after? What are the other things that I pursue? What are the other things that I want to offer? And so uh, we begin with this idea from Jesus, which is follow me. Because that is the most important thing. I can't tell you how often and how easily we fall into the trap of inviting people into following other things. The only thing that we're called to follow, the only person that we're called to follow, is Jesus. That's what we aspire towards together. So that's the first aspect, the first focus of this invitation. The second is that the invitation asks for a change of purpose. The invitation asks and involves and, in, and calls us to a change of purpose. Look at verse 20. What did they do when Jesus said, follow me? Well, immediately they left their nets and they followed him. They left their nets and they followed him. Why? Because following Jesus meant something. They realized that they could not follow Jesus and continue in the direction that they were going. See, following Jesus meant a change of purpose. When you understand that the invitation to pursue Christ does not come with it the affirmation of the status quo. Now, now in some ways, that's good and bad. In some ways, you love the status quo. 
You might love the things that you get to do because you really enjoy it. In other ways, you would love to change the status quo because you feel like certain things that you're involved in, certain things that you're engaged in, certain things that you're pursuing, you feel the inherent deadness of them. It might be relationships, it might be a job, it might be a stage in life, it might be a problem, it might be a struggle. There's an aspect to this, to this change that's wrapped up in this invitation to follow Jesus that we love, but there's also a challenge because there are certain parts of my life that I would like to keep, honestly, I would like to keep God's hands off of them. I still want to do the things that I want to do. I still want to run after the things I want to run after. I want to pursue the things I want to pursue. I want to spend my money in the things I want to spend my money on. I want to set my heart on the things I want to set my heart on. I want to be able to go to those places and do those things. That truth be told, if I were pressed, I might say that's not exactly what it means to follow Jesus. And so if you and I are similar in any way, there are aspects to our life that welcome change and there are aspects of our lives that fight against them. But what we can't argue is that in Jesus' mind, according to Christ, that following him meant a change of purpose. And we see that in those early followers of Jesus. We know it because they left their nets and they followed him. The direction of their life had to change. Why? Because following Jesus is radically different than following yourself. Following Jesus is radically different than following yourself. Living in his kingdom requires a change of currency. If you've ever traveled abroad, uh, one of the things that I've learned when I travel abroad is that I go to the currency exchange and I get some local currency. I get some local money. In some places, depending where I am, my American dollars will spend or I can use my credit card. But when I go through local places with local people, I, I don't use my American money. I need to use local currency. When my dad would come back from business trips, he would always bring me back a little bit of local currency. And I thought it was amazing to have a Canadian quarter in my pocket. And I would look at it and I would hold it up against my American quarter and I would look and see the differences. And then what I realized is that if I didn't have the right currency, it was actually pretty annoying. Because there are things that I wanted to do, there are things I wanted to buy, but, but I didn't have the right currency. And then you begin to try to get into this conversation of, well, would you take this? Could I give you this? And they say, no, I don't want that because it's, it's not the right currency. I used to try to pawn off uh, Canadian currency or things that I would get uh, from missionaries in my church when I was a kid. I thought it was great until I realized it has no value where I live. There's absolutely no monetary value to this thing. It's cool. It looks kind of neat, but, but it serves me no practical purpose based on where I am. The reality is, is that following Jesus, entering into his kingdom, you, you, you need to have a change of currency because otherwise you and I, we walk around and we just want to spend the same currency because we're living in the same kingdom. So, so for these first two guys, they understood that the currency that they were used to spending, their job even, Jesus says, follow me. They lay down their nets and they follow him because the invitation to follow Jesus means leaving behind our old currency, our, our past, and following him to where he leads us. There's another great example in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, uh, we, we meet a guy named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. 
Now, Zacchaeus is uh, one of those guys that if you grew up in church, uh, you know historically he was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. Climbed up in a sycamore tree. The Lord he wanted to see. Uh, that was my Sunday school experience. That's how we learned things. We sang cheesy songs and they stick in our minds when we're adults. Zacchaeus was a, uh, he was not a well-loved man by the Jews. He was a tax collector. He was a guy who was not viewed as loyal. Uh, you could liken it to when I lived outside of Philadelphia as a Giants fan, and, and I knew full well that when the Eagles were playing the Giants on a Sunday, if I were to walk into church with a Giants jersey, all of a sudden everybody's love for the Lord, it's, it goes by the wayside, okay? <laughs> it's a great church, but nobody loves Jesus anymore because you've got a Giants jersey on, and this is Eagles country, which, by the way, Eagles are terrible fans. Um, <laughs> sorry, Bob. Bob's watching online, so he'll probably post about that. Um, uh, so Zacchaeus was the equivalent of a Giants fan in Eagles territory. That was Zacchaeus. And so Jesus is coming to town, and Zacchaeus really wants to see him. Why? Because there is something really curious about this man Jesus. He's healing. Lives are being changed. There is something profoundly impactful about this guy Jesus. Zacchaeus does not have his life together by any means, but he is drawn to this person of Jesus. And there's a problem. The crowd is so large that he's a shorter man, he's, he's a smaller guy, and he can't get past the crowds. So what does he do? He climbs up in a tree. So you've got this guy, he climbs up in a tree because Jesus is going to pass by and he wants to see Jesus. And so as Jesus is coming by and he's going through the crowds and he looks up and he sees he's Zacchaeus up in a tree, uh, look, look at what happens in Luke chapter 19, verse 5. When Jesus came to the place... He looked up, sees Zacchaeus, and he says to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. So Zacchaeus is up in a tree because nobody's letting him through the crowd. And Jesus sees him and Jesus calls him by name. And he says, Zacchaeus, come on down out of that tree. Not because you're an idiot or not because I'm going to tease you, not because I'm going to berate you, not because I'm going to use you as an illustration about the corrupt politics and about people who aren't faithful to, to the Jewish people. No, I'm actually going to invite myself over to your house. So Zacchaeus hurries down from the tree, receives Jesus joyfully. And when they saw it, when the people who were watching, when the religious people when they saw it, they grumbled. And look at what they said about Jesus. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Can you believe that Jesus is going into the home of this guy Zacchaeus, who's a sinner? Zacchaeus stood, and look what he says. He says to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. What you have to understand is the significance that Zacchaeus had, uh, had established wealth for himself through dishonest gain. Zacchaeus had taken advantage of people. He had enriched himself. 
off the backs of other people. What made it worse is that the government told them it was okay. They said, you can collect as much tax as you want over and above the required amount. Whatever you can squeeze out of the people over and above what they owe, you can keep the extra. Zacchaeus had gotten rich off of the backs of the people, and the government said it's okay. But something happens. When Zacchaeus encounters Jesus and Jesus says, I'm going to your house, and Zacchaeus enters into this understanding of, I want to have this relationship. I want to be a follower of Jesus. Zacchaeus realizes that his status quo has to change, that he can't stay who he was and follow Jesus. It's just impossible. Something needs to change. And so these words of Zacchaeus are powerful because he's saying, listen, if I have taken any money that I should not have taken, if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So I will give you back four times what I have taken from you because I have no desire for my past life to be used against me in my desire to pursue Jesus. I am willing to have a change of direction, a change of currency. This money that I used to fight for and argue for and hurt people over, I no longer want that to be the way that I approach my money. And in fact, not only am I going to return four times what I may have taken, but I'm going to give half my goods to the poor. What's happening here is that Zacchaeus is going through a conversion of currency. He is converting his currency from one kingdom, his kingdom, into another currency in another kingdom. It is of greater value for me to pursue Jesus than it is to pursue myself, to live for myself. And it is so important that you and I understand that real change is tied to the invitation to follow Jesus. Because if you and I don't understand that, it's a big dynamic, it's a big piece. Now, let me just give a really quick counterbalance of where I don't want this to go, okay? Real change, don't let this idea of real change fool you into legalism or earning God's favor. Okay, so as much as I'll be over here and I'll try to move and I'll try to encourage to say that, that real change has to be included in your pursuit of Jesus, that who you were can't stay who you are, that what you were running after can't be what you continue to run after, that real change is a, is a huge dynamic of what it is to follow Jesus. Let me get on this side of the seesaw. Okay, because so often as Christians, we are able to convert this idea of real change into this very heavy burden that we call legalism that says that I must do things in order to earn my salvation or keep God's favor. That if I don't change enough, well, then God won't accept me. If I don't get my act together enough, then God won't keep me. If I don't improve my situation enough, well, then God won't love me. And so we take this very real concept of being changed, conformed into the image of Jesus, and we allow it to turn into this idea of legalism, which is why we have to understand God's heart towards our sin, his heart towards our brokenness, or else we fall into legalism. And we look at people and say, you know what, you're not changing enough. God's not going to be happy with you. Or we look at someone like Zacchaeus and say, man, Jesus, why are you interested in a sinner? 
And so Jesus tries, he tries to clarify how we are to view this whole balance of, of growth and change while not erring on the side of legalism. And so look at what he says in verse 10. While the people are criticizing the unworthiness of Zacchaeus, Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The invitation from Jesus to change, the invitation from Jesus to be new, to convert your currency, does not, uh, it is not fueled by fear or guilt that God sees us as not enough. The fuel that drives us is the fact that when God sees us lost and broken, that Jesus says, this is who I came for. And I didn't come to beat you up. I didn't come to ignore you. I didn't come to ridicule you. I came so that I could call you down from this tree that you have found yourself up into, and I have invited myself into your home, and I have extended myself in desiring to have a relationship with you. And that does not drive you to feel inferior or inadequate. In fact, it should drive you to be overwhelmed with this sense that the king of the universe, the God who created it all, he sees you and he loves you. That's what compels Zacchaeus to say, if I have done wrong, I will pay back four times what I've stolen. I will give back half of what I have to the poor. He doesn't do it out of a fear of inadequacy. He does it out of a desire to respond to great love. And for you as a follower of Jesus, whether you are offering an invitation to someone, whether you are trying to make sense of the invitation that you might have received, but you're still trying to make sense of what that actually means, what you have to understand, the invitation calls you to change. The invitation calls you to be different. The invitation calls you to grow. It calls you to expand into the fullness of Jesus. But that growth, that expansion, that change is not fueled by a fear of God's responding to you out of anger and judgment if you fail to measure up. Because that wrong understanding has fueled our natural tendency to lean towards legalism where we measure someone's spiritual health, their spiritual well-being by whether they check the external boxes. <clears throat> for me as a kid, it was if I listened to certain types of music, I was bound for hell. If I was in a movie theater when Jesus came back, I would still be sitting in that movie theater <laughs> after Jesus had left. There's all sorts of stuff. There's all sorts of things that you have heard and you have experienced that says, if you do this, then you're going to go to hell or you're not going to... Now, to be clear, there are some things that are, that are not good, which is why for Zacchaeus to identify and say, listen, I have not always been the very honest businessman. I have hurt people. I've done wrong. And in fact, the things that I have done are actually being used against the credibility of Jesus' work. So here's what I'm going to do. I value the work of Jesus over and above my ability to enrich myself, even though I can make a case as to why it's okay. The government told me it's okay. The government empowered me to do it. Legally, I'm okay. I'm in the clear legally. But what I have done, who I have been, is taking away from the credibility of who Jesus is. Therefore, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pay back four times what I've taken. And I'm going to give half of what I owe to the poor. Why? Because I want to follow Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. And I understand that that means real change. And so I'm really going to change. That's what I'm going to do. So what I'm trying to lay out for you is this understanding that you understand that change is built into the invitation, but the change must be fueled 
by the right understanding. That God loves you more than you realize and he offers you something that you don't deserve and we respond to it because of how great he is. Not because we earn it ourselves. <clears throat> okay, let me, let me start to get to the end here. Um, what's the invitation so far? Follow Jesus requires change. Number three, uh, the invitation expands your family. It expands your family. Uh, look at Acts chapter 2. The invitation to Jesus always brings with it an expanded family. Uh, Acts 2, 42 to 47. This is very early in the life of the church. Um, the church is just getting started. Followers of Christ are starting to expand. Uh, and, and look at the description of the family of God. Acts 2, 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers and awe came, came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be intentionally uh, brief uh, because this, these verses, they're a message in and of themselves. So let me be intentionally brief. The early followers of Jesus were introduced to an entirely new way to do family. That's it. I mean, I'll say a little bit more. But, but basically, the, the, the new followers of Jesus, they were introduced to an entirely new understanding of what community and family looked like. What did it look like? Number one, they were feeding together. They were spiritually feeding together, and they were physically feeding together. They gathered together under teaching, and they gathered together under meals. They did meals together that filled their bodies, and they did feeding together that filled their souls. That was the early family. They gathered together. They did it together. Also, number two, their family was marked by seeing God move in their midst, and they were in awe of it. Their family was marked by seeing God move, and they were in awe of it. It breaks my heart when I listen to people who have been outside of, of a spiritual family, and, and when they talk about getting to church, or they talk about getting into a small group, or they talk about moving into a Christ-centered community, they don't expect to see God move. They don't expect to see God show up. The early church, one of the primary markers of that family of faith was that they fed on God's word, they shared meals together, and they were in awe of God who showed up in their midst. That's what their family looked like. Number three, they experienced the joy of not doing life alone. Those who were going through hard times, others pitched in. Those who were struggling, others came alongside of them. They did life together. That being in that early family of faith meant you were not alone. Because the people who were there cared for those who also were there. Those who felt alone, someone came and helped them. Those who had plenty came and offered it to others. There was an exchange that took place. Finally, at the end of the day, the tangible presence of God in their midst resulted in more people wanting to be a part of it. They did not argue. They did not convince. They did not cajole people to follow Jesus. Those on the outside saw what was happening on the inside, and they said, I want to be a part of that. 
I want what they have. I feel empty and I want to be full. I have a lot and I want to offer it. I want what those people seem to be having. Not because they were the most attractive, not because they were the most popular, not because they had the most money or they were the best at their things. But they were feeding on God's word. They were doing it together. They were meeting each other's needs and God showed up in their midst. And daily, people were added in to what God was doing there. So, let me land the proverbial plane. Do you know the single most attractive thing about Christianity? I mean, if you think about the invitation that you want to give to somebody, what is the invitation? What is the destination? What is the object of the invitation that, that needs to get out there? What is the single most attractive thing about Christianity? I'm sure there's a lot you could put on the list. But here's what I would say. It's Jesus. And it's the difference he makes in an individual's life. It's not our pews. It's not our lights. It's not our screen. It's not the fact that we're set up so you can watch from home. Those are all great things. It's not the color of our paint. It's not our carpet. It's not the fact that we've got some amazing communion supplies that we're going to use in just a second. It's not our glossy oasis invitation. What is the single most attractive thing about Christianity? It is the power of Jesus to move in your life and to change you. And when people see that who you were isn't who you are, they want to be a part of that. When people see that you're part of a real family that cares about you, they want to be a part of that. When people see that you have allowed yourself to encounter someone and that you are literally changing the currency of your life, people want to be a part of that. The thing that people really need to see is Jesus. Now, maybe, maybe you never got that. Maybe you've been going through the motions of being a Christian or going through church stuff. And you never quite had the clarity of the invitation that says, what will you do with the person of Jesus? Will you follow him? Will you make your life about alignment with his life? Will you study him? Will you talk to him? Will you pursue a relationship with him? Will you follow Jesus? It's possible that you've gotten many invitations and you think you've even accepted it, but you missed that one key point. Who is Jesus to you? It's also possible that you're on the other end of the spectrum and in your enthusiasm to share and your enthusiasm to offer, you've forgotten that it's really about Jesus. You've forgotten about the role of community. You've forgotten about the role of your own life coming into alignment with who he calls you to be. What is the invitation for you? Have you received it? And are you offering the right one? Because what the world needs to see now more than ever is the real person of Jesus really at work in who you are in a way that makes a difference and in a way that tells them that God loves them far more than they maybe thought he did and that they can experience hope themselves in an invitation that is clear, in an invitation that's vulnerable, in an invitation that's compelling, not because of what you bring to the picture, but because of who you're trying to introduce them to. Let's pray. God, God, we, we begin with a 
thank you. We begin with a thank you because we read about Zacchaeus up in that tree and we can't help but feel uh, that you found us in similar situations. That you found us in a place where, uh, if we're honest, we had reached the end of what we could do. The idea that this man with all of his wealth, with all of his uh, connections to government and power and authority, that he found himself climbing up in a tree to meet you. God, we, we are in a world that people are desperate for something. They're desperate for answers. They're, they're desperate for hope. They're desperate for uh, things to be different. They're, they're hanging on for that, for that one thing to change in their favor. For some, they feel vulnerable. For, th- for some, they feel scared. For others, they feel angry and on edge. God, I ask that we would be a people who know what it is to come into contact with you. That we would be a people who know what it is to say that you called us down from where we were, you invited us into your home, you invited yourself into our home, and that you draw us into a relationship with you. God, help us to be a people that know that you are the object of everything, that you are what we are drawn towards, that you are the one we need. So God, let that be something that we internalize in our own lives and let it be something that we offer with great joy and hope to those around us, that they can know you because you desire to be known by them. So God, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.